Hi, my name is Robin Beauchelet. I'm in my fourth and final year of undergraduate studies at McGill University, where I'm currently pursuing a BA Honors in International Development Studies with a minor in Political Science. For this episode of A Piece of Work, I chose to highlight my research on the Asia-Pacific region, specifically as it pertains to Singapore and the historical narratives that played into developing post-independent Singapore from the 1960s onwards. I first developed my interest for the history of East and Southeast Asia throughout high school, and particularly in my senior year of high school for my world history and world geography classes when we talked about the Asian model development. What really struck me about East and Southeast Asia was that first, I never really got to learn about the region before that, before I, I took these classes in my senior year of high school. And second was the diversity of social, economic, and political scenarios throughout the region uh, across the many different countries that compose the region and even within, within these countries. As an international development student, History plays an important role, and most importantly, the historical narratives. Most of the times, these were used by colonial powers to help justify colonialism and to avoid the rise of nationalism and particularly anti-colonial nationalism. Particularly, you find that in the British motto of colonial rule, uh, the rule and divide, uh, whereby British colonizers would attempt to divide their colonized people in their many colonies throughout Africa and Asia by pitting one ethnic group against one another. And what really strikes me in the case of my own research on Singapore is that post-independent Singapore never saw any major ethnic conflict or ethnic rivalry that you would see in many other societies after independence from British colonialism. So what really interested me in looking into that was particularly the comparison with Malaysia, which is Singapore's neighbor. And most importantly, Singapore used to be a city within Malaysia up until it was kicked out of the Malaysian Union in August 1965. Interestingly, Malaysia did see a high number of ethnic pogroms, uh, particularly in May 1969, following the electoral win of the Chinese majority party in Malaysia. And what really interested me was to understand why this happened in Malaysia while it didn't happen in Singapore and why the Singapore seemed to have a much better ethnic balance while having four or at least three main ethnic groups in the city. What I think is really interesting is to look at the kind of narratives that the British colonizers used while they were present in Malaysia at the time or Malaya as it was called at the time. Particularly, it's interesting to look at the way that British colonizers would take Chinese citizens from their colonies, uh, mainly in Hong Kong, but also other parts of South, Southern and Southeastern China, and move them to Malacca, then Malaya, to become merchants and traders, and basically develop commerce in these um, colonial outposts. The main, the main rationale behind this was that the British colonizers believed that Chinese citizens were by default more inclined to do well in commerce and that by contrast, uh, native Malayans and as well as Tamils that they mainly took from colonial India, the British Raj, uh, and sent to Malaya and Singapore to work. 
they believed that Malayans and Tamils were more uh, inclined to work better in the fields and other kind of hard physical labor. And the problem is that this did impact the post-independence Malaysia and post-independence Singapore in more ways than one. Particularly in Malaysia, where Chinese remain the Chinese ethnic group in Malaysia remains a minority, it developed a sense of insecurity among the uh, majority Malay, particularly because they felt threatened upon independence that Chinese uh, Chinese Malaysians having more um, exposure to commerce and high bureaucratic positions during colonial rule would probably tend to take control over Malaysia at the detriment of Malays. And interestingly, Singapore did not see such a rise of insecurity among Malays, primarily because China, the Chinese ethnic majority in Singapore makes up about 75% of the population and only about 15% for ethnic Malays. But that's not the entire part of the story. What is also really interesting is to look at the city's first prime minister, Lee Kuan Yew, who developed a new narrative upon independence precisely in an attempt to avoid any ethnic riots or pogroms such as the ones that Malaysia saw in May 1969. What Lee Kuan Yew did was to sort of try to put everyone in the same foot with the English language policy and the mother tongue policy. Basically what the mother tongue policy says is that everyone needs to know English and English is used across the city as its official language, mainly because none of the ethnic groups that were present in Singapore at the time of independence had English as their native language. So in a way, every ethnic group was put on the same level. However, like when you still believed it was important for everyone to remain connected to their roots, mainly through the mother tongue policy, whereby students in the Singapore public education system would of course be taught in English, but would also have to pass a test in their mother tongue, which would either be Chinese, Malay, or Tamil. Interestingly, this policy avoided any kind of ethnic outbidding that marred Malaysia in contrast. However, it is also important to look at another kind of historical narrative that was fostered by Lee Kuan Yew in post-independence Singapore namely the one of Asian values. The theory of Asian values has been largely contested and remains very controversial in political science as well as history. Primarily what Lee Kuan Yew tried to define as Asian values was a set of values that differ from neoliberal democracy in the West. And instead of emphasizing individuality and personal freedoms, Asian values would promote order and stability and the value of community and family. And basically what Lee Kuan Yew used to forge these so-called Asian values were the Confucian traditions that are so dear to the Chinese majority in Singapore, uh, particularly in Confucianism, or at least the roots of Confucianism as you would find um, in medieval China, you would find filial piety and the importance of order and hierarchy and primarily when it comes to your family so your father, or in the case of a couple, from the wife to the husband, or from the youngest to the eldest sibling, and so on and so forth. So basically, Lee Kuan Yew used this uh, sort of structure and hierarchy and applied it to the concept of Asian values to justify the fact that in 
many countries across East and Southeast Asia, citizens are more prone to have somewhat more authoritarian regimes than democracy because these regimes tend to perform better than Western democracies and bring order, stability, economic development for everyone. Of course, this narrative has been largely debunked. And if you look at East and Southeast Asia today, you will find thriving democracies. To name a few, you could find in Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, as well as the Philippines up until 2017. Of course, this concept of Asian values is not meant to be an umbrella term to sort of explain entirely the historical and political developments of the region. However, I still find that it is interesting to find how this theory of Asian values was used by Lee Kuan Yew to reframe the narratives behind post-independent Singapore, especially those that he used to create the city that is now the seventh safest in the world as of 2020. As I will pursue my graduate studies at the National University of Singapore starting in August, I intend to do more research on the role of the mother tongue policy. More specifically, in the courses I've been able to take at McGill, I was only able to look at the mother tongue policy as it was implemented in the 1960s and 70s, and briefly to talk about its impact today. However, I wanna have a broader overview of the policy. And most importantly, I also want to be able to look at the way that this policy will probably evolve with the rise of bringing workforce to the city more specifically from Bangladesh, Nepal, but also many countries of Africa, where the foreign workforce is currently moving to Singapore and to determine whether or not this will impact the mother tongue policy and the ethnic cleavage or lack thereof in the, in the city.